Today is part 18 of our Matthew series. It's going to take us through the rest of the year and a little bit into next year. And I entitled today's message, A King's Ransom. And as you grow bored by what I'm going to share with you this morning, I would like you to read at the top of your page some quotes by Cicero and by Abraham Lincoln. They kind of set the tone of where we're going to go. But I do want to remind you of where we left off. Because last week I wasn't here, right? Did I not leave you in capable hands? Do you like Dr. Nystrom? Pretty amazing guy, yeah? A very brilliant guy, very wonderful communicator. I'm glad that he was able to bless us. Great, great guy. But if you don't remember where we were last time, you're in the majority. I didn't remember what the heck we were talking about last time, so I had to go back and look. A lot's happened since then. Where we left off is that Jesus was talking about relationships. He was addressing issues like forgiveness and issues like divorce. And that's when he began to engage with the rich young ruler. Do you remember that guy? Where he said, oh, I've done all the great things. I love God. And he said, all right, let's put this to the test. Do you love people enough to sell all that you have and give them all your money? Well, the rich young ruler said, no, I don't. And he walked away sad. Do you remember that story? Right after that, Peter said, well, we've given up everything for you. What are we going to get? And that's when Jesus said, don't worry about it. You're going to be more than compensated for anything that you have given up for me. For as a matter of fact, there will be 12 thrones. Upon those 12 thrones, you will sit judging Israel. That is important for you to know for this story. But Jesus wrapped it all up by saying a famous phrase that he keeps repeating over and over. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. That is going to mess with a lot of these folks theology and it will mess with ours as well. So Jesus wanted to clear up a few of these things. Would you turn with me? Two, Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. It's page 697 in your Bibles. And I want to leave you uh, as an intro one concept. It's the concept of justice. We in this culture seem to hold justice very high. We like the idea of fair. And if you want to know how much we buy into this idea of fair as a culture, cut someone off. Just go out there and wait for a long line, wait for like around Watt Avenue, maybe on the 50 corridor, on 80. Wait for everyone to line up, then just go on the side shoulder, go all the way down, just cut in front of somebody and see how everyone reacts. All right, you're going to find out everybody's really focused on fair. They're going to say you're not being fair and they're going to get very mad and try to convince you as to how unfair that was, right? But here's the truth of the matter. We believe in our heads that we want justice and fairness, but we live every day in grace. You know, what am I talking about? Well, think about it this way. What if we as a group of people with all our friends really acted out strict justice? How do you think that would work? I repay you to the T every time you hurt me or harm me. How do you think that relationship would go? We operate on the concept of grace. We assume the concept of grace. And I would suggest to you that when it comes to God, you don't want justice. You want grace. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. God's justice is complemented by his grace and mercy. It does not contradict. It complements God's justice is complemented by his grace and mercy. Well, we don't understand because we don't have a very systematic theology, by and large, meaning 
we understand how everything we believe affects something else. We don't think that way very good. We can hold two polar opposite views about God at the same time and not that twice. But here's what you must understand. When it comes to justice, we want it for our enemies. We don't want it for us. When it comes to mercy, we want it only for ourselves and not for our enemies. We can't have it both ways. Praise God that he is so amazing that he knows how to sort it all out. And he's not asking us for guidance. Amen. Amen. Let's dive right into this. We're going to begin with a parable and it is only found in the book of Matthew. So this will make it easy. We can kind of read through it together and study it. But in order to understand the word of God, I believe we need to be praying about it. So let's just take a moment to go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we can study this as academics or we can study this for transformation. But we're not going to be able to see you clearly unless you reveal yourself. For we have always been those waiting for you to share with us. We can't go find you. We can't dream you up. You have to take the initiative. As you have already done all the heavy lifting, we now read your word with eager hearts. Would you open up our eyes in Jesus' name? Amen. The parable begins like this. For the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius or a drachma for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Here's a couple things you need to know. Number one, we're in an agricultural society here. Some of you that may be very far removed from what you're familiar with. So you got to kind of jump into the farmer mentality. The other thing is that the Jewish workday is from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So I need you to kind of reset your clocks as we go through this story. Otherwise, you'll get a little bit lost. So 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And the way it would work is the landowners would go to what would be considered the labor exchange, the union hall, a open marketplace where all the laborers would gather. If you would think about maybe modern day day laborers, guys and girls that go out and they pick um, in the uh, fields or in the orchards, and they stand in one general area waiting to be hired. That's the scenario that we're going to operate in. These people are desperate to work. Why? Because in that day, you would receive a denarius, which was a normal day's wage. That was not too much to save. It was basically just enough to live on for that day. If you're a slave in that environment, your life is horrible for many other reasons, but at least you're guaranteed a meal. These people had to work for their daily bread. So when you hear Jesus say phrases such as when he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. That is very true. It means give me a job to do today that I might be able to earn a day's wage that I may be able to feed my family. These people had no guarantees. If they didn't earn the money, they didn't get the bread. Their families went hungry. So these people had to wait out for someone to hire them. They had no other options but that. That's where we begin. About the third hour, that is 9 a.m. So you start up at the top at 6, go third hour. That's 9 a.m. He also went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, meaning they hadn't been hired. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. 
He went out again at the sixth hour. What is that? That's noon. And at the ninth hour, what's that? 3 p.m. And did the same thing about the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m. Because the day ends at six, one hour before closing time. He went out and still found others standing around. And he asked them, why you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Well, because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, let's stop. Is this all just a made up story? Is this all total hyperbole that no one would really go out and hire people like this? No, actually, it's very legitimate. There are some crops that you need to harvest very rapidly. I was reading one commentary and he was speaking a lot about how vineyards work at this area of the world. And he was saying that the grape harvest, if the heavy rains are coming, you're basically up against an urgent issue. You have to hurry up and grab all the workers that you can, get them as fast as you can into your fields, and get that stuff picked and cleared out. Otherwise, you'll lose it, everything that you work for. Now, here's something that we have to be careful with. This story is a parable. It is not an allegory. What's the difference? An allegory, every little detail means something else. A parable has one general point that you're supposed to take and move on with. So we need to be careful not to make this say more than it does. You're going to start reading stuff in. You guys, for a preacher, this is really hard. Okay? Because I can make it say anything, and it would be awesome. I can start making up all these new messages, and, and wow, this stands for this, and this stands for this. I don't believe that's fair to the text, so I don't want to do that. I want to stay as close to the text as we can, so we've got to be very, very cautious as we move forward. It says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Why did you do it that way? That's kind of odd. Why wouldn't you pay the guy first that you hired first? Why would you pay the last guy? Well, we don't know exactly why, but I'll tell you what it does in the story. He reversed the order on purpose to create tension and to make a point. That's all that we know. How's it going to go? Well, it's certainly going to create tension. Here's what happens. It says, the workers, um, well, we begin. Uh, here we go. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received what? A denarius. Does that sound familiar? All right. So that doesn't sound too bad, but they just worked an hour. So he goes down the line. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive what? More. Do you blame them? No. You're all lined up. You've worked 12 hours in the sun. Joe Schmo comes up, worked one hour, and he gets a denarius. So you're calculating in your mind. He worked one hour, got a denarius. 12 times denarius is big dollars for me, right? And you're immediately calculating this out and going, I can't wait till he gets down the line. This is going to be sweet, right? So he goes down the row when they, it says, but to each one of them, he also gave a denarius. Now you feel ripped off? As a matter of fact, it says when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Once again, I don't know if I blame them. I think I would be them. But there's something wrong here. Not only did he create this tension to make a point, and certainly there is plenty of tension. 
But when you see this problem revealed in front of you, they're thinking, I'm not okay now. I was fine. Now I have a problem. And you know what it did? Their preconceived ideas stole their joy. Did you see that? Okay, why? When they started the day, they would have been thankful they were hired. Do you remember? And what did they agree to work for? A denarius. What did they get? A denarius. This should have been a day of thanksgiving. This should have been a day of joy. God should be praised. Thank you so much for giving me this day my daily bread. But they're not thankful anymore. Why? Because someone else got something more. It stole their joy and the thanksgiving to God was reduced to grumbling because of preconceived assumptions. The landowner never told them anything different. But they went off in their own minds. So they said... These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. That is a question of fairness. So they're challenging him and saying, you are not being fair. But what did he respond? The landowner said, but he answered to one of them, friend. And by the way, that's the same word for friend that he used for Judas in the garden when Judas kissed him and betrayed him. Friend. I am not being unfair to you. In other words, you're challenging me on the issue of fairness. What did I tell you I'd pay you? A denarius. What did I pay you? A denarius. So I am not being unfair. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Are we all tracking on how this relates to Jesus? Are we all, is this too much of a grab? All right, I'll I'll connect the dots here in a moment. But here's what you must know. The landowner said, I want to be generous. Somehow, in some way, we have bought into this bogus notion that God owes us salvation. And we are mad when we hear anything about hell. How dare you? I didn't ask to be here. I didn't ask to be born. Who do you think you are sending me to hell? I don't deserve this. I deserve what is fair. You sure? Justice leaves us all in hell. Mercy and grace leaves us here with hope. Amen. All right. He says, don't I have the right to do with what I want with my own money? That's hard for us because I'm going to bring a stool over here. I was just to let you guys know I was sick all week. I was in bed, so I didn't know if I was going to be able to preach today. But in case I am going to pass out, I will sit down. He said this. He said, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? That is where we run smack dab into the sovereignty of God. We don't like that. We pretend in our own little world that we run the show, right? That we're in charge, not him. But who's God and who's not? Have you ever corrected a child and they look shocked? As a parent, they're like, who the heck are you? Where'd you come from? I have been running this show. Now you're correcting me. How dare you? Right? Same thing that we do all the time is that we are always telling God what to do. And when he finally shows that he is God, we get very offended. We don't like that at all. For example, you can live in la-la land until something severe happens, like death. Then what happens? you got nothing to say, and God goes, they're gone now. But you could have stopped it. Yes. But you didn't. Yes. Well, that's not fair. 
You have no right. Stop. Who am I? Do I not have the right to make decisions? That is a king's prerogative. We don't like that at all. But then look at the next question. I believe this is the heart of the matter. Or are you envious because I am generous? We don't like that. We love him generous with us, but we don't like him generous with others. Because when he's generous with others, it makes us feel ripped off. Are we ripped off? No. So the last will be first. The first will be last. Now, I was reading a commentary and it gave me basically an understanding that I would have missed had I not done the research. And it basically said, listen, Jesus was talking by and large to two groups of people. He was talking with, first of all, the Jews. And think of it this way. How long have the Jewish people been God's chosen people? As what? As long as they've been around, right? That's kind of what they were born to do. So how many thousands of years have the Jews been around? A lot? Quite a few thousand years. How easy has it been? Pretty darn tough, yeah? You go, well, they saw the miracles. Yeah, they've basically been beat up and in warfare forever, right? I mean, it's just been a brutal, difficult time. And they have been held to the standard of Yahweh. Ah, well, picture what else happened in the world. The Gentile, the non-Jewish people have been screwing around for millennia. They're out there running around, serving other gods, making up ways to do evil, doing everything that they want to do. And now all of a sudden, when you begin to read about later on, after Jesus shows up, he includes Gentiles into the family of God. How are you going to feel about that if you're a Jew? Wait a second, they're what? Well, they're part of your family now. Oh, no, they're not. We are your chosen people. We're the ones that have been suffering for thousands of years. Who the heck are these people? They're not coming in our family. Yes, they are. Well, they're not getting the same rights. Yes, they are. Do you understand why this story is important? It's also a message to the disciples. When you are the front line that's breaking all the ground, you're getting tormented and tortured and martyred. Then all of a sudden, guys like the thief on the cross roll in. And you're like, what? What are you doing here? How long did you serve Jesus? About four hours, you know. <laughs> what? You better have like a lower level of heaven or something. There's no lower level of heaven or something. It's equality. Does a king have the right to be that generous? Does that mean he loves the Jews any less? No, but you can understand the struggle. Do you guys understand? You all remember the story of the prodigal son, right? Oh, we love that story. Love the story of the prodigal son. Oh, look, he's out there screwing around. He's totally rebelling. And he comes home. Oh, he gets a big hug. That's fantastic. Anybody remember his brother? Okay, that's what this story is about. Now the brother says, wait a second. Whole time this guy's off gallivanting around the town, blowing all the money, doing whatever he wants. I'm here every day working your farm. I'm the one that's constant. I'm the one that serves. What do I get? This guy comes home and he gets a party. I'm not going. That was a message to the Jewish people. Got to watch this stuff because it enters into our hearts just as much as it does into their hearts. We want grace for us, but we don't want it for the serial killer, especially if he harmed our family. We want it for us, but we don't want it for the Nazi soldiers 
that exterminated the Jewish people. We love grace only insofar as it applies to us, but we feel ripped off when it's applied to someone else. You can't have it both ways. If you don't grasp grace, you don't get Christianity. Pick up the next story. We're not going to understand this next story about Jesus talking. This is the third time he will be addressing the issue of uh, his death. And um, we're not going to understand it unless we pull in Mark and Luke. So, so let's do that. I'm going to grab my sheet. You guys, sorry about this sitting down. I know in the back you guys can't see me very well, but you can't see me if I'm laying on the ground either. It says, uh, according to Mark, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. This is the third time. He said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. They will insult him, spit on him and kill him. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The disciples did not understand any of this, Luke says. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they didn't know what he was talking about. How do you miss that? Honestly, I believe they were missing the idea of what resurrection means. But he entered in two new details that they probably hadn't heard before. He had already told them he was going to die. What they didn't know was that, number one, betrayal was involved. What does betrayal mean? It means you have to be betrayed by someone you trust. The only ones that they trusted were the 12. So if they were smart, they should have started looking around. Also, he mentioned that the Gentiles were involved. The Gentiles, what do they have to do with it? What do they care? This is a Jewish thing. No, the Gentiles are involved. We pick up the next story. This, I think, is fascinating. Once again, Matthew says that the mom, James and John's mom, led this whole vying for the throne thing. Uh, the other guys, Mark and Luke, say that it was just James and John's idea. So if we combine them all together, here's what it would sound like. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, James and John, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Teacher, they asked, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's a good start, huh? Thank you, Justin. Uh, I might pass out. You ready to go with my notes? Mm. Mm. Oh, just leave me there. Just preach around me. <laughs> what is it you want? He asked, perhaps just to the mom. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Well, what do you want me to do for you? He said, perhaps to the boys. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. We well, don't know what you're asking. Jesus said. Okay, where did they get the idea about sitting on the right and the left? Do you remember? Last time we met together, Jesus said there will be 12 thrones. You will be sitting on 12 thrones judging Israel. So now thrones are not good enough for them. What do they want? The right seating. They want to make sure they're sitting on the right and left to him. And it seems that this mom is kind of pushing the envelope on this. You kind of go, why? Where does she get the right? I'll tell you that in a moment. It says this. He said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with a baptism that I'm baptized with? What is he asking? 
can you handle the torture, the torment, and the pain that is going to come your way? What do they answer? We can. Now, these guys are totally deluded. Or they really mean it. Do you remember James and John had a special nickname? They were called the Sons of Thunder. I think they know exactly what they're talking about. These are the guys that said, hey, Jesus, I don't like that town. They weren't nice to you. Shouldn't we just burn them all alive? I think they're pretty clear on what's going to happen. Jesus said, you are right. You will indeed drink from my cup and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my father. In other words, I'm not going to play favoritism with you boys. I love you, but we're not going to start switching seats because of it. Also, you will indeed take this the take the hits for the kingdom how did it go for james and john anybody remember uh historically how it went james is the first to go do you remember first martyr out of the disciples he died really soon after jesus was raised from the dead he was beheaded under king uh herod agrippa the first how did it go for john the opposite end of the spectrum he was the one that lived the longest they believe he lived into his 90s he was tortured and exiled to the island of Patmos where he received a vision, what we call the book of Revelation. And he wrote a couple of the letters. But then he, a tradition says that he was freed from that island and he went on and did more missionary work. He took care of Jesus' mom, Mary. And he did a bunch of stuff, right? You remember all that? What's easier, to die fast or to watch all your buddies get slaughtered right in front of you? Either way, is this not a baptism by fire? He said, no, you're going to go through it. And it's going to hurt. Here's two things that I think are fascinating about this story. Number one, where did this woman get this audacity to say this? Where did she think she had the right to ask Jesus of this? Interesting study. Study the women at the foot of the cross. Examine their names and write them down. Here's what you'll find. This is Mary's sister. Why is that important? Because that makes it Jesus' aunt. Who are James and John? Jesus' full-blooded cousins. When you think about who the inner three are, isn't it fascinating that it's Peter, James, and John? Isn't it likely that those guys spent their whole lives together? Isn't it likely that James and John knew them from childhood and they always spent time with Jesus? Is it no wonder that during the Last Supper, who was the one that leaned back against Jesus' chest? John. Isn't it fascinating that they got to see all this special stuff? That these guys are family. And he said, I don't care... If you're family or not, those places have already been assigned. And aunt, I know you changed my diaper, but no. <laughs> we all follow in this? Here's the last thing that you need to know. The name James doesn't exist in Greek. Just found that out yesterday. How in the world have I not known this my whole life? <laughs> sure enough, I go back in James. Uh, I go back in uh, Greek. Start looking it all up. Nope, doesn't exist. If your name is James... And you thought you had a biblical name? Sorry. You know what it is? Jacob. Every time it's Jacobus in Greek. What in the world are they switching people's names for? You can't just call because there's four or five guys in the Bible named James. Every time, there is no such name as James. It's always Jacob. So where did they get the name James? Oh, that's right. This one king decided to finance this Bible... I think you've heard of it. It's called the King James Bible. Oh, that's right. Who decided to throw his name in there? Fascinating. 
The word on the street was they thought Jacob was a little too Jewish sounding, so they thought they'd change it to James. Is that not bizarre? We move on to the final two stories. When the ten heard about this, meaning the vying for the throne thing, they were indignant. They were furious with the two brothers. By the way, they're going to be tense all the way through the Last Supper about this stuff. They're always fighting about who's greatest. Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's his point? Guys, quit trying to climb this ladder. You're climbing upside down. In my economy, the t- higher the title, the more the servant. Are you really trying to be a greater servant? And if that's the case, great. If not, let it go. But the Son of Man, if anyone had the right to claim that they were amazing, it was Jesus. And what did he do? He came to be spit on and crucified that we might be saved. See, in God's justice, someone died for our sin. It just wasn't us. Because he extended grace and mercy to us. We finish with this last story. The three gospel writers tell this very, very differently. Um, one says there was two blind men. The other two say, no, there's one blind man. What's the truth? There were two blind men. One just took the lead. Uh, they also say one said he was leaving Jericho. The other said he was going into Jericho, which is true. Well, there's two cities of Jericho. There's the old city and the new city. If you're walking out of one, you're walking into the next. So it's just all depends on perspective. But it sounds like this, if they were all to teach you together. Then they came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples were leaving the old city of Jericho, a large crowd followed him. As Jesus approached the new city of Jericho, two blind men were sitting on the roadside begging, one of which was a blind man, Bartimaeus. Bar means son, that means son of Timaeus. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening, and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. When they heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Those who led the way rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and ordered the men to be brought to him. So they called the blind man, the blind men to him. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, Bartimaeus jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And when they came near, Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, rabbi, they said, we want our sight. We want to see. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Receive your sight. Go, Jesus said. Your faith has healed you. And immediately they received their sight and followed him along the road, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Why is this story in here? Jesus has healed blind guys before. Who cares? Well, where's Jesus going next? Anybody remember the town? Jerusalem. What's going to happen there? He's going to be crucified and died. But what's going to happen when he first walks into the city? Anybody see in their Bible the next subheading? What is it? The triumphal entry. What does that mean? It means for one time only, for a very limited and short amount of time, Jesus will be treated as the king he is. He will march into the city, the holy city of Jerusalem, and they will throw down palm branches and shout, Hosanna. What better way to announce the Messiah has arrived than to have two living proofs 
of blind men walking alongside praising God. And when people asked them, who are you? They said, I'm the blind guy that used to beg right there. But now I see, and you know what I see? I see the Messiah has come. I see the Messiah is Jesus. Here's my close. Jesus died as a ransom to buy you back from your sin. What are you going to do with that? When the blind guys knew they were blind, they knew they needed help. When Jesus passed by, they jumped at the chance. When everyone told them, when everything in them told them to shut up and quiet down, they would not take no for an answer. What are you going to do with this? Are you really going to leave this church today without submitting yourself to Jesus Christ? Are you really going to wait for justice when grace is being handed to you right here, right now? You think you got more time. I get that. The only problem is this Saturday we have two funerals running side by side of people under 40 of our congregation that died this last week. I don't know how much time you have. I have no idea. I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to try to scare you. I'm just going to tell you this. When Jesus passes by, you jump at the chance. And I don't care whether you're saved or you've never met Jesus before. This message needs to matter. It needs to make a difference in your life. He is extending grace. What then will you do? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored by what we do with your word. Would you change our lives because of what we've heard? Would you save us? As many that are here that don't know you personally, would you reveal yourself to them that they might be healed and that all of us would follow after you and sing Hosanna. In Jesus' name, amen.